right, good morning. So good to see all of you in here today. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 13 again. This is the second week that we're in chapter 13. And last week I mentioned that we've been in Romans for a little over 10 months now. We uh, actually began the series over a year ago, but there's been some Sundays where we're looking at different things, but if you count the Sundays that we were specifically in this Roman series, it's been about 10 and a half months, and I don't know about you, but I am continually amazed at this book. We move from one majestic theme to another, and our hearts and our minds are lifted from the pettiness of our ordinary American life. You know, moving from American culture to the book of Romans is like moving from a little old hill in East Texas to Mount Everest. I read something fascinating earlier this week about William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake in the year 1526 just for translating the Greek New Testament into English. He had been awakened to the truth of the gospel by reading the New Testament and the book of Romans in particular for himself. And that wasn't normal for people, for people to do back then because the only way that people knew what the Bible said was by relying on these Catholic priests to tell them what the Bible said. Because back then it was only translated into Latin. And the only ones who knew how to read Latin were the religious leaders of the time who were schooled in, in knowing how to read and understand it. So the people had to rely on the leaders to tell them what the Bible said. And a lot of the times what they said wasn't true. Because they would just tell them what, what benefited them, what benefited the church and enabled them to maintain control and have power over the people. And the book of the Bible that medieval Roman Catholic Church avoided more than any other by far was the book of Romans. Romans was the dangerous book. This was the book that expressed most fully the true meaning of Christ, his death and resurrection and justification of sinners by faith alone and God's ultimate sovereignty. This was the book that ordinary folks in England must not be able to read for themselves, even if the church that had power must burn people alive in order to prevent it. Romans and also Galatians, that was another book that had to be avoided at all costs. And so the translation of the Bible from the original Greek that it was written in into English became a capital offense that was punishable by death. Isn't that crazy? But thanks be to God that you can't hide Mount Everest forever. And by God's grace and mercy, he moved in men like Tyndale and Martin Luther and John Calvin to awaken people to the truth in God's word and the glories of his grace. And when the book of Romans was read with clear eyes and clear understanding, the corrupt system of Roman Catholicism at that time exploded and the Reformation was born. 
And it is because of that defining moment in history that we now have God's Word available to us in English and hundreds of other ordinary languages. And this morning, because of that grace that birthed that awakening, we now have the privilege of being able to read and understand Romans with clear eyes and clear understanding. And my earnest desire is that we will not take that for granted. What we do in here every Sunday, the truth is we are eating of the fruit that grew from the ashes of those martyrs. The ashes of those men who were so profoundly affected by what they read that they were willing to die so that others, so that me and you would be able to read it for ourselves too. That's one of the reasons why we stand together Every morning when we read from the text for that particular Sunday, it's because these words don't deserve to be read with just a laid-back, apathetic attitude. They deserve to be read with an attitude of awe and respect. And so knowing that we are reaping the benefits of what those men were willing to go through way back then, let's all stand together this morning and read these amazing words that we have been given. <clears throat> We're going to read the same verses that we looked at last week and then the rest of it as well. So Romans 13, beginning of verse 1, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all who is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much that we can stand in this place today and read from your word in ways that we are able to understand. And God, although you have given us the physical lives to be able to read this in a language that we speak, Lord, I pray that you would give us the spiritual lives that we need to be able to see the truth that is in this that, that changes us from the inside out. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and just do that here among us and in us this morning, so that Jesus may be glorified in us and through us. In his name we pray, amen. Here at the beginning of chapter 13 is another one of the great themes of Romans that lifts us out of our ordinary ways. The theme here is God's establishment of every government that exists on earth and every government that has ever existed on earth. 
So right off the bat, point number one in your notes is that God has established every government on earth. God established him. Now, this is something that we must understand. It's a simple statement, but it's one that carries a lot of implications with it. And it's a statement that should cause us to wonder some things, should cause us to ask some questions and some difficult questions at that. Because if we think of all the governments that have ever existed in the world, there are some that make it difficult for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God would be the one who actually established them. I mean, there have been some pretty evil and wicked governments in history, and there are some that exist today. And so one of the questions we should wonder is, does this include even evil governments and wicked authorities? And when it says in verse 1 that we should submit to authority, does that mean always and no matter what? When it says in verse 3 that the civil authorities are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil, is that always true? Or are there some authorities who cause fear for actually doing good? What are we to make of Paul's seemingly absolute statements that he makes about these things here in this text? Well, let's start with the first question. Does the fact that God establishes authority mean that he is the one that even establishes wicked authority? Well, the Bible is pretty clear that it does mean that. For example, in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, Jeroboam was one of the most wicked kings that ever existed in Israel's history. But 1 Kings 12, 15 describes his evil reign like this. It was a turn of events from the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was the pagan king of Babylon who destroyed Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah 27, 6, God says, Now I have given all the lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. He actually calls this wicked ruler his servant. Remember, a servant is one who carries out the will of of the master. And what about Pilate, the ruler who by far did not reward good behavior, but gave the ultimate punishment to the only man who was perfectly good. And he said to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus looked at him And I'm convinced that when he said this, he looked at Pilate right in his eyes and probably got even closer, probably nose to nose to him. And he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and he sets up kings, all kings, not just the good ones. They are all under his control. He puts them in office and he takes them out of office. You know all this talk you've been hearing the last few weeks about the election being rigged? The same stuff that we hear every four years? Well, guess what? It is rigged. It's rigged by God because he makes sure that his candidate, the one that he wants to put in there, always wins. 
That does not mean that you shouldn't vote or your vote doesn't count. By all means, do vote because when you do, you're taking part in something that God is working in, that his hand is all over, and he uses the people to carry out his will, to work things all out according to his will and his decree. The next person that moves into the White House next January will be the one that God puts there. And the one that's there right now, he's there because God is the one who put him there. And there are many, and maybe some of you in here today, who may be appalled at that thought. And you might even say, how in the world can you say that God is the one who put in place a baby-murdering, Muslim-loving, Christian-bashing racist who wants to take away all our liberties? Some would say that. And they would say, God wouldn't do that. He's good. Oh, yes, he would. And the fact that he does do that does not lessen his goodness one bit. You see, nowhere in his word does he promise to work all things out for the good of the United States of America. But he does promise to work all things out for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Next point in your notes is this. The good of God's people and the glory of his name might best come about through the rule of a wicked king. It happened with the wicked Pharaoh in Egypt. It happened with the wicked Jeroboam in Israel and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and Herod in Jerusalem when he was trying to kill all the babies of a certain age to keep the Messiah from coming into the world. And it happened with Pilate in Jerusalem. Proverbs says the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he will. And he's going to turn the heart of a king to accomplish his will for his people and the glory of his name. All right, so let's look at the second question. When verse 1 says that we are to submit to the governing authorities, does that mean always and no matter what? (laughs) Well, it's a good question to ask because if you look at this text closely, you will see that Paul gives no exceptions here. He doesn't say only submit to good authorities or submit to the governing authorities as long as their decrees are just. He just says submit to the governing authorities, period. Is that an absolute statement that Paul is making there? Well, just because we can't find exceptions here does not mean that we won't find exceptions elsewhere in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, some of the apostles were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And an angel of the Lord comes in the night and busts them out of jail. And the angel tells them, gives them instructions and says, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And so this angel of God sent from heaven specifically told these men to disobey the commands of the governing authorities. And they did. And the religious leader seized them again and said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. 
That right there is in direct conflict with Romans 13.1, which would mean then that Romans 13.1 is not necessarily an absolute statement that Paul is making. You have the story that we're all familiar with of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who blatantly disobeyed the orders to bow down and worship the, the, the man-made image of the king. And as a result of this, they were punished and thrown into a fiery furnace, but God saved them from that. And then just a little while later, you have Daniel who boldly defies the law of the king that was made that said that no one was allowed to make supplication and request of anyone other than the king. And David was part of the king's inner circle, and he saw this decree, this law being signed by the king, and it was the law of the land. But when David saw that happen, you know what he did immediately? He went to his house, went into the upstairs room of his house, opened all the windows that overlooked the city, and got down and prayed on his knees several times a day. I mean, it was as if he was wanting people to see him blatantly disobeying this law of the king. He was committing open civil disobedience, and as a result, he was thrown into the lion's den, and God saved him from that too. Jesus himself, he knew the laws of that day. And the laws that were made by the religious leaders who were the civil authorities, they were the ones in authority over Jewish culture. And that they took a lot of liberty in their interpretation of the law of Moses and they would actually add other laws to it. For instance, the law that says to keep the Sabbath holy, that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. The religious leaders would take that further and so they would define exactly what is work. And so they would say it is against the law to uh, mow your, your lawn if they did that back then. And uh, these specific things, it's against the law to do these things because that would be considered work. And it ended up in some ridiculous laws. One of them was that it was against the law to spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, your spit would mix with the dirt, creating mud, and making mud was considered work, and so you couldn't work on the Sabbath, and so therefore you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. That was breaking the law. What does Jesus do? Not only does he heal a blind man on the Sabbath, which was against their law, I mean, he was committing civil disobedience just in doing that, but he took it a step further. In order to heal this man, he what? He spit in the dirt, creating mud, took the mud and wiped it on the man's eyes, and he was healed. Now, Jesus could have healed this man in a lot of ways. He didn't have to do it. He could have just said, eyes be open, and they would have been open. This was a blatant affront to these ridiculous laws. Jesus was literally spitting on their religious self-righteousness and legalism. So if we have biblical examples of the condoning of civil disobedience, why would Paul seem to make such absolute statements here in Romans 13? Well, one of the things that you have to consider when looking at context is what exactly was going on at the time that it was written. 
Of course, Paul was writing this to Christians living in Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, which ruled the known world at that time. And Caesar was the supreme leader of the empire. He was looked at not just as a Caesar, as a ruler. He was looked at as a deity, as a god. And so to the subjects of Rome, there was no higher authority than Caesar. But this new Christian movement comes along and, and they start saying things that, that people perceive as a threat to the empire. Things like King Jesus and belonging to another kingdom. And so many of them saw Christianity as being rebellious against Rome. And so Christian persecution began to be uh, pretty rampant and they were being thrown out. And so I believe that Paul knew that this letter here that he wrote to the Christians in Rome would more than likely eventually find its way into Caesar's household. At the very least, it would be confiscated by some lesser official and read by them. And so Paul wants them to know that Christians are not out to overthrow the government by claiming Jesus as Lord and not Caesar. He wants them to understand that Christians pay taxes They show respect to their authorities. They do good in the communities. Leave us alone. We are not revolutionaries seeking to overthrow the empire. We are harmless lovers of lost and hurting people. And we will do much good for your empire. But then there's another reason I think he made these statements so absolute. It's because I believe Paul is more concerned with our humility and our self-denial and our trust in Christ than he is about our civil liberties. In other words, someone might read this and take these statements to the extreme and take them as absolute and thereby allowing some wicked government to just run right over them or submitting to decrees and laws that they probably shouldn't. And so Paul is risking being misunderstood on the side of submission because he saw the next point in your notes, that pride is a greater danger to Christians than government injustice. And so instead of Paul saying, submit only when it's right to submit, he just said submit and made it an absolute statement lest someone would allow their pride to cause them to rebel in an ungodly way. Paul would not have written this way if he thought that being treated fairly by the government was a kingdom value. He would have written this way, and he did, because he thought that the greater value in the kingdom of God was things like faith and humility, and self-denial, and willingness to suffer for Christ, and they are greater values than fairness. And what bothers me today, I've talked about this before, is how the, what you hear more and more today, even from Christians, is the statement, it's not fair. I'm telling you what, that should not ever be a complaint of a follower of Christ. Because we follow the poster child of being treated unfairly. And he said, if you're going to follow me, you better be willing to take up your cross and be willing to be treated just as unfairly. 
Christians being treated unfairly is part of the package. So the truth is, we should wear that as a badge of honor more than a complaint to whine about. Right? Fairness is not as valuable in the kingdom of God as these other things that Paul is trying to highlight. And so now the question becomes, when is civil disobedience the right thing to do? And when you do it, what should that look like in a Christian? As for when it's the right thing to do, I believe a correct guideline could be this. It's in the next thing in your notes. We should resist authority if the law commands what God forbids and forbids what God commands. Because remember, the government is not the ultimate authority. God is. We serve a higher authority. Remember in that diagram that we looked at last week, the whole sphere of government, God is at the top there. He is the one that we submit to first and foremost. And so the next point, the commands of God trump the commands of government. But there's a problem with this simple guideline. And the problem is that much of civil disobedience that has occurred from Christians in history we're against things that are not clearly addressed in Scripture. A black woman refusing to give up her seat to white people on a bus in 1955. That was the correct thing to do. But it was not something that was specifically addressed in Scripture. A county clerk refusing to sign the marriage license of a gay couple. That's the right kind of civil disobedience but you won't find that command in Scripture on not signing marriage licenses. Our country has been defined from the beginning by events that have had to come to terms with Romans 13. From the revolt against the oppression of the British government to the refusal of pastors to hand over their sermons to a wicked mayor. There have been times when Christians believe that the laws were so unjust and political means of change have been frustrated for so long that peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience seemed right. And all that is to say that there really is no clear and simple answer to when a Christian should resist government authority, especially with the issues that are not explicitly addressed in Scripture. It would then come down to making a decision based on what you believed was God's will in that moment. Which then takes us back to Romans 12, 2. And the absolute necessity for us to have our minds renewed so that we will be able to discern what the will of God is. So if you don't have a renewed mind, you're not going to be able to know when that time is right. I'll wrap this up with one more thing that we need to address, and that is when it comes time for disobedience to be in order, what should that look like for a Christian? Turn to Matthew chapter 5 for a minute. This is the words of Jesus and part of his famous Sermon on the Mount. When we read this text... What I want you to pay attention to here is not necessarily the specific commands that he is 
he is addressing, the specific things he is saying to do, but I want you to notice the overall tone and attitude that he is trying to get his people to display. Starting in verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asked of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Next point. The overriding response of a Christian to any situation should be the response of love. Now, this is not to say, and I want you to hear me, this is not to say that passive conformity is the only form of love. There comes a time when the response of love towards injustice must go beyond passivity and nonviolence and throw the money changers out of the temple. Love isn't always meek and mild. But when it comes to civil disobedience, these words of Jesus... It rules out all vindictiveness that may try to rise up in our hearts. He cuts away at our love of possessions and comfort and safety, which is the whole point of Matthew 5. Jesus is saying, don't act out of concern for your own personal benefit. Don't act out of concern for your stuff, your clothes and your possessions and your own personal comfort and and safety. Instead, by trusting Jesus, be the kind of person that is utterly free from the love of those things so that you can then be free to love and live for others. The attitude then of Christian civil disobedience will be the opposite of belligerent, rock-throwing, screaming, swearing, violent demonstration. We are people of the cross, folks. And our Lord willingly submitted to a brutal execution in order to save his enemies. You and I are forgiven sinners. And that alone takes the swagger out of our protest and the arrogance out of our resistance. And if after all other means have failed, we must disobey for the sake of love and justice, we must first remove the log out of our own eye which should cause us enough pain and humility to soften our indignation. 
And our our resistance then becomes a quiet, unshakable no. No. We don't have to scream and holler and make a fool of ourselves. We just with strong conviction and full of the Holy Spirit. No. We will not be moved. The greatest battle we face as Christians is not overcoming unjust laws, but becoming that kind of people. And what that does, once again, is show us how much we desperately need Jesus. This whole issue we're talking about here this morning is not one that we face here in this country every day. But there are thousands of Christians in other parts of this world who wake up to this reality every single morning. And if things do keep going the way they appear to be going here, and this may very well become a reality that every one of us will have to face in our lifetime. And we need to be ready for it. How do we get ready? By knowing Jesus. It's not by stockpiling a bunch of provisions. Because if you don't know Jesus, those things are going to do you absolutely no good at all. You've got to know Jesus. And I'm not talking about knowing about him. I'm talking about knowing him fully, intimately, and personally. And those who do know him in that way, when that time comes, we can be comforted by his words in Luke 12, 11. He says, when they bring you, when they bring you before the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. What it all boils down to again is being able to trust Jesus. Trust him. Trust, as you've heard me say before, is the highest level anyone can achieve in any relationship. It's not love. You can love someone and not fully trust them. Trust is an incredible thing that carries so much security, so much peace, and so much confidence with it. God wants us to trust him, even when everything around us seems to be falling apart and the whole world itself is against us. We can trust him if we are his people. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you can be trusted. And Lord, I just confess that we so foolishly put our trust and our confidence in things that will inevitably let us down, will disappoint us, will fail us, and will turn on us. God, I pray that this family here, that a 
brought together by your blood. Lord, we will be the people that walk in trust. God, that we will value the things as members of your kingdom, the things that you value most, not the things that the world values, the world says is important, the world says that we need to stand and fight for. God, what your word says that we need to stand and fight for. Holy Spirit, I thank you for revealing to us this morning again how desperately much we need you. We need to be full of your spirit and led by you. We need to have our minds renewed to be able to see things the way that you see them. So, God, I pray that right now in the remainder of the time that we have together, Lord, there may be something specifically that jumped out at somebody in here that you want to do in their heart, something that they need to bring to you. God, I pray that that would happen. Holy Spirit, I pray that you draw us more to Jesus. I pray that you would instill in us a burning passion for your word, the kind that those men had that were willing to lay their lives down so that others could experience that same thing. Lord, let us be so enamored and blown away by you and what you have done that no threat that comes against us can sway us in any way. It's all about knowing you. So, Jesus, I'm asking that you make it possible that when we leave here this morning, we know you better than we did when we came. That's my prayer. It's your name I pray. Amen.